morning. Uh, today we'll be reading from Psalm 32. It's about halfway in your Bible if you're unfamiliar where Psalms is. On the Bible in your seat, it's page 511. Psalm 32. Blessed is the one whose transgressions is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away, through my groanings all day long. For day and night you, your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with, with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curved with bit and brittle, or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but the steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy and all your upright in heart. This is the word of God. Thank you, Drew. If you do not have a Bible, again, please do take that as our gift to you. Uh, we would love for you to have a copy of God's Word. In fact, if that one you find is falling apart someday, maybe in the near future, come and grab another one. Or if you know somebody else who could use God's Word in their life, take this. This is what these copies are for. You'll find one underneath your seat. I would encourage you to keep it open uh, to, again, page 511, 512, as we are going to be going back and forth from this passage quite a bit. Um, that's just, I guess, maybe a quirk of my preaching. Well, really a quirk of uh, many who would say, we want to hear from God's Word. Well, we want to keep God's Word open. I encourage you, another way to participate in the sermon is not only to keep your Bibles open, but to, uh, to take notes during your sermon, like, in the sermon, like you might have done when you were in school. Um, it helps us, if you're as forgetful as I am, to help us to begin to study God's Word, to, uh, again, look at these passages later on. It helps, not so because I have much to say that's impressive, because God, what He says, is very impressive, especially today. Um, I do, before we get into our passage today, I want to reaffirm for those who are new uh, to join us this morning— um, who may be just now joining us online or in person. If you are in person, again, we just ask for you to care for one another by wearing your mask during the whole service. Recognize we're in very tension-filled times. I think we would say that we're in very uh, divided times. We've seen in even the last few weeks. This is a silly issue to divide a church over or to divide people over. So if we would, during a church service today, if you would keep your mask on um, and uh, serve and love one another well in these ways as we pray for an end to this pandemic and for God to continue to preserve life. Um, but we are going to be in Psalm 32, continuing a series that we began last week called Our Eyes Are On You. It's a series on prayer, and we're calling it a season of uh, desperate prayer and expectant faith. We are starting our year intentionally this way, and last week we looked at where this, uh, this quote comes from, Our Eyes Are On You. The larger quote is actually, We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, coming from King uh, Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat, as he was uh, facing uh, odds that were 
way beyond his ability to, uh, he was just very aware of his own inadequacy, his own inability. He could not stand before the odds that were in front of him. And so he turns very honestly and very desperately to God, asking for his help. Together we considered what was the perhaps most, uh, the essential foundation of all prayer, which is dependence, desperate dependence. Why do we pray? Because we must. Because our lives really are in desperate need and we cannot save ourselves. And because God not only knows what we need best, but he alone can meet our needs best. Prayer at its very essence is an expression of dependence, of saying, I cannot save myself. I need you. You're my only hope. You know, prayer in many ways is like a child running to their parent for help. Prayer is a expression of dependence. It calls out who we are. Dependence upon God, for God to do what only he can do. But this week, we're going to consider what might be an unexpected way that dependence is demonstrated through repentance. Now, if last week we considered uh, why we pray, when we pray because we must, this week we're going to consider, well, who can pray? Which I realize is rather a strong way of putting it. What do you mean, who can pray? Can't anyone pray? Well, I actually do mean it quite strongly. Who can pray and expect God to respond, friends? Who can experience a meaningful and truly unhindered prayer life? A person who practices genuine, ongoing repentance. But I want to look at one passage, although we could go to many passages today where this is made particularly clear. Psalm chapter 32, which we just had read for us. And we're going to look at this psalm in three parts. We're going to look at the relief of repentance, number one. We're going to look at number two. We're going to look at the promise of repentance or promise in repentance. So the relief of repentance, the promise in repentance, and number three, the crossroads of repentance. So let's begin, though, and I, I want to ask, before we do, uh, have you ever had, uh, I've, I've had this experience, maybe you have as well, you ever realized you just overshared something? You ever been in a circumstance like that, you, you risked, you said something, and it just got very quiet in the room? People let, nervously chuckled with something you just said? You ever gave somebody too much information, TMI? You thought it was safe to confess something, and yet what you just said obviously made everyone else around you very uncomfortable. Anybody been there other than me? Okay, thanks for making me feel not alone this morning. Uh, I think in many ways, we as a culture actually find confession awkward. We find confession, largely speaking, strange for at least two reasons, and these have been pointed out by author Gerard, Gerald Wilson. First, he says, and I agree, I think because as a culture, we love our privacy. You may not think so with all the, that we freely share uh, t on social media. Some things you're like, you should probably keep that to yourself. Uh, but still, I think there's a great deal of many things, a great deal of things in our life that uh, we'd rather not have out there. Some things that are uh, my business, thank you very much, and I'd like to keep it that way. Wilson describes it this way. Such a dynamic of privacy makes us increasingly unwilling to divulge our most private issues and concerns to others and makes us uncomfortable to intrude into the interior privacy of others. 
he links this to our, what our, the kind of popular notion of tolerance. The result is often a, a rather superficial relationship with others in which only the most obvious or innocuous elements of our lives are actually shared. After all, let me ask you, <clears throat> is there anyone in your life who knows you entirely? And I mean knows the real mess of your life. Who knows the real junk, not just the stuff that you can laugh off with friends, but the stuff you're really embarrassed about. Even in a church, I'm sad to say, it's common for Christians to have rather superficial relationships with one another, keeping a great deal of their lives private. I want to see why this should not be the case in the church, but nonetheless we can say that it's the reality. But the second reason is not just that we love our privacy. In our culture, the second thing that stands in the way of genuine, real confession is a sense of perfectionism. Because we want to live independent lives, we imagine that we ought to be able then to accomplish our goals and meet our needs and fulfill our dreams on our own terms, on our own. We should have the self-discipline, we imagine, to uh, make something impressive of our lives. And yet, if you're, if you're honest, if you're like me, we don't. Instead, we face failure and disappointment all the time, unable to abide by even the standards we set up for ourselves. And even though our counselor might say that we should lighten up, we can't help but be burdened by all that we should be able to do. Afraid that we will be found out, we put on a facade that I, I really am in control. I, I really am happy. I'm really killing it. Only we're withering inside. We're hiding our fears, sometimes in very destructive behaviors. Or we're setting ourselves up for massive, often public compromise. Now our culture's demand for privacy, as well as its demand for perfectionism, aren't the only things that stand in the way of our confession. In fact, we're going to look at some more important things that I think stand in the way of our confession. But I think even the non-religious person here can empathize with then what David describes. In Psalm 32, David describes someone as wasting away. Not so much from physical suffering or from a terrible loss or grief, but from deep, private shame. He is actually describing himself. He, in verse 3, he describes an experience I think many of us can relate to. You know, even secular psychologists will tell you how guilt affects the body over long haul. De uh, depression, insomnia, stomach, even heart issues, anxious obsession are all physical signs of a guilty conscience. It's as if, uh, as David puts it, the body is wasting away through groaning all day long. As if day and night, God's hand is heavy upon you. As if your strength is dried up by the heat of summer. Anybody know what that feels like? Maybe you can speak from personal experience. When you are carrying a deep sense of guilt, even when you can't specifically put your finger on why. It's as if you lack the energy for everything in your life. As if you've become spiritually dehydrated. You're withering. Your spiritual life then becomes shallow, uh, routine, if it exists at all. You begin to pull back from others, and then you run back to old habits to cope, which only make things worse. 
the weight of what we have done or should have done, the weight of your responsibility presses down on your soul with a weight that you can't possibly bear. And yet for all the reasons that we avoid confession, David speaks as as if confession, if confession was what finally brought him relief. Joy even. He describes the life of confession, the life that follows confession specifically, as what he says is a blessed life. Now that might sound very religious to us. What What you should hear is the truly happy life. And we mean not a happiness that circumstances can steal away, a a life that knows before God that it is blessed, it has his favor, the kind of life that is truly favored, truly happy, in a sense, is the forgiven life. This leads to our second point, where we're going to spend the most of our time, the promise in repentance. The promise in repentance. Friends, I've sat across the coffee table or the living room from many people who have said something along the lines of, I just can't seem to forgive myself. Some of us here are carrying regrets or failures. We're not sure we'll ever be able to let go. We're not sure that we will ever be able to forgive ourselves for. Jason Meyer describes it this way. Our memories can serve as a kind of time machine. A time machine of memory can be a good thing when we go back and we replay the good times. It can help us enjoy a pleasant experience in exponential ways. But the time machine of memory becomes twisted when we use it to relive our past failures and punish ourselves multiple times for the same mistakes. When we put our sins on repeat mode, we wince and groan over and over again because it triggers sharp pangs of guilt and shame. Our guilt brings past sins into the present and says, look, you made a mistake. Then shame joins the conversation and adds, yes, and you are the mistake. Why do we torture ourselves by going back to places of failure in our memory banks, Jason concludes, I mean, sorry, uh, continues. Why do we continue to push the play button and experience it all over again? We wish we could go back and erase our failures, but that is not an option. We can't seem to get over it, and so we go over it in our minds again and again. Do you know what this is like? Often it's not even a single incident that eats us up. Just a general cloud of guilt. We can't put our finger on what has us so eaten up. The weight, though, that our soul carries is clear of all that we should have done and made of our lives. It's no wonder that our contemporary culture gives a great deal of attention to self-forgiveness, to forgiving yourself, as, as even as it, it would call many ways the that self-forgiveness would be the most important forgiveness according to our culture. Psychology Today, a psycho- psychotherapist Beverly Engel says, I believe that self-forgiveness is the most powerful step you can take to rid yourself of debilitating shame. Self-forgiveness. But how does this square then with what the Bible has to say? It's honest about this shame, certainly. And it's honest about how that shame can be debilitating. But is self-forgiveness what we need most? Is self-forgiveness actually the most important step what will provide us relief? Allow us to read verses 1 and 2 again. 
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against, you could say woman there as well, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now, as we've already pointed out, the blessed or truly happy life is a forgiven life. But this happiness isn't linked actually to my forgiveness. It's linked to God's forgiveness. Let me tell you why this ends up actually being way more satisfying, way more relieving, experiencing God's forgiveness and not just an ambiguous sense of self-forgiveness. But for we, for, to understand so, we need to uh, understand two things, actually. We need to understand, according to the Bible and according to this passage, the scale of sin first— and then we will understand from that the scale of forgiveness. But let's look at the first piece of that, scale of sin. Look back at verses 1 through 2. And we're going re- to nerd out together. You ready for this? Okay, so I want us to notice the different words that David uses for sin. How he describes his offense. He uses three words, transgression, sin, which is the most common term, and iniquity each describing sin, each describing that thing that needs to be forgiven from a different angle. Now, transgression means something like an act of rebellion or disloyalty. A transgression, in other words, is a betrayal, an act that treats a relationship that I have as if that relationship were meaningless. It could be adultery or gossip or pornography. The point is that this kind of sin represents a betrayal. In a sense, actually, all of our sin fits into this category because it fails to treat the most important relationship I have, the love relationship I have with God, it fails to treat God as God. It's no coincidence that the Bible so often compares our sin to being like cheating on a spouse. That betrayal, the betrayal of all sin, rejects God's authority and betrays his love. Sin, though, the second term, the word we most often use for sin, the, sin, the, the word that we perhaps don't like very much, we see, maybe have a bad history with that word, it tastes, uh, it smells wrong to us, especially in present day culture. It refers to an act that misses a standard. It falls short of what is best. It veers off a path. It does so often intentionally. James, in the New Testament, will refer to this as knowing the good we ought to do, and yet we don't do it. Think about how many of our regrets are bound up with the things we should have done or said. Often sin isn't just something we commit, it's something we omit in our lives. Again, in a sense, all of our sin could fit into this category, falling far short of God's own standards that he sets for our holiness. Iniquity, the third term, refers to something that's blatantly crooked, twisted, or wrong. This is the kind of sin that looks to do wrong, wants to hurt, intends to punish, plans to take. The most extreme forms of this include things like Abuse, molestation, murder. But often, this kind of sin shows up on a more daily basis whenever our greed or our anger or our bitterness get the better of us. Have you ever been surprised at what you were capable of? You know, these 
three terms aren't meant to be the only terms we could use of sin. In fact, the Old Testament's going to have many more, but these three terms here are not even so that we might be able to pinpoint which kind of sin it is. Rather, it's to paint a picture of the scale of sin, to show how wide-reaching sin actually is, all of the ways that we could go wrong. Sin is not merely a matter of breaking a rule. It is failing to treat God as God, living a life that falls far short of what we were made for, often doing and saying things that we regret sometimes for years to come. And even as we certainly sin against one another, it's important for us to say that sin, to take it truly seriously, we need to understand that it is first and foremost against God himself. You know, David in a different psalm is going to say, against you, referring to God, against you and you only have I sinned. Now he, he doesn't say that in, in any way denying the real ways that he has sinned against others. In fact, the sin that he has just committed is, uh, in, in, is he's committed both adultery and murder. The greatest king in Israel, Israel can, convict, uh, can committed uh, adultery and murder. But instead of um, owning up, he, he is uh, not, uh, again, denying the impacts it has on others, but he is owning up to the true nature of sin, owning up to the fact that every time, as betrayed and offended as, uh, as others might be, as great as the consequences might be on others, that's only a small taste of what it means to actually sin against our sovereign God to whom we owe everything. Owning up to the true nature of sin means owning up to the fact that God is always the one who is most betrayed, most offended every time. The point is not to beat you over the head with these things. I mean, some of you, I'm sure, are thinking, thanks, Pastor, I already know all the ways that I'm going wrong. Are you wanting me to feel worse? Well, maybe, actually. <laughs> Let me tell you why. Because it's only, true, it's only good to... It's the good news that comes from the gospel is only good news when we understand it in contrast to how bad news the bad news actually is. As we actually own up honestly to the desperate nature of our condition. More honestly than really anyone else can be. Christians can be freed to look at the darkness of their own heart, recognizing they can't fully plumb how, the depths of how, where their sin will cause them to go. They can be honest about the true and authentic about the true nature of their own hearts, because it's on the way to understanding the good news, which is where we're going to turn. Because I, my point here is not to beat you over the head, but more importantly for you to know that whatever the sin, whether, whether it is intentional or unintentional, whether it is secret or public, whether it is large or small, whether it was committed right now or in years past, it can be forgiven. And that leads us to the scale of forgiveness. To see this, I want us to see the various ways that David describes forgiveness. Again, we're going to nerd out for a little bit longer in these, these verses. And again, each of these words gets, gets at forgiveness from a bit of a different angle. First, we find that term, forgiveness, where David says, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. This word, which we translate forgiveness, means something like a lifting up of a weight, Bearing away a weight. It's a really powerful illustration of somebody lifting a terribly heavy burden. Think of what David says about the shame he experienced. Here, David sings about the fact that all of that weight, all the terrible burden of his shame, 
the heavy hand of God's right hand, the, the, of God's right hand, uh, is his right and just judgment, it was lifted off of him. Some of you have been carrying the weight of your worst mistakes, hearing over and over again, you haven't just made mistakes, you are the mistake. What would it be like to have the weight of all that shame lifted off of you? To be able to breathe again? To not have to keep it hidden anymore because you have already been seen exactly as you are and you have been forgiven. But there's something really even more important about this image. It's not just that the burden of shame can be lifted. It's so often that this burden is lifted by someone who then takes that burden upon themselves. Someone who can. Like a parent who takes a child's backpack on a hike. Like someone agreeing to pay off all of your debt themselves. Like someone taking the blame for your greatest mistake. Forgiveness doesn't just lift off a burden. Someone takes that burden in your place. The second way that forgiveness is described is forgiveness described as, some, as sin being covered. Blessed is the one whose sin is covered. This gets at another really important image in the Bible. You see, our basic impulse when we sin and the way we cope with that guilt and shame is we cover up. We hide. The first human beings did this and we do so as well. We cover up our sense of guilt and our deep inadequacy by building up an inner resume with all of our accomplishments, with all the reasons that I deserve to be loved. We put on facades, fake smiles, polish up our lives so that we can actually be seen by others. But these attempts end up being as pathetic as the fig leaves were for Adam and Eve. They don't really make us feel better about ourselves for long, do they? That's why we have to keep adding to that resume. And more importantly, they don't cover what needs to be covered. Can you imagine again what it would be like not to have to cover yourself anymore? Now, I don't mean parading yourself around naked like some of my kids seem intent to do. Even this morning, one of my children was running around without a shirt on. No, I mean being freed from the need to cover yourself, to build the inner resume, to prove just how lovable you are, to justify yourself, to be seen at your worst and know that you are still loved because something else has covered you. You don't need to cover yourself any longer. Did you notice what happened in verse 5? What does David say? David says he didn't need to cover his iniquity anymore. Why? Because he had already been covered. It's as if he had been given new clothes, and in God's sight, he is seen differently now, that God gave clothes just like he gave new clothes to Adam and Eve in the garden. Instead of wearing all the ugliness of David's shame, David now wears innocence, purity, what the Bible calls righteousness. And third, David speaks of forgiveness as having our iniquities no longer counted against us. In other words, having our track record of failure blotted out, our record of debt canceled, set aside. It's actually the same word that we get the word imputation from, which is a word, uh, it's a yeah, word we probably haven't used very often, 
can sound very complex, but very important nonetheless to what the Bible has to say. It's a tremendously important term in the Bible that refers to instead of being considered guilty, having all of the evidence laid out on the table that clearly convicts me, all of that guilt, that guilty sentence isn't counted to me. Instead, I am counted as righteous. I am given a righteousness that I did not have myself. I'm given something so much more than a not guilty charge, more than an innocence charge, that I am called worthy. I am called righteous. I am given something that clearly the evidence does not reflect, at least my own. This is what Abraham experienced in the Old Testament, who despite all of his doubt, failure, and compromise, was not counted guilty by God, but righteous by faith. Can you imagine what it would be like, again, not to be counted simply as innocent, but treated as righteous? To be given a new status, to have stamped upon my forehead worthy worthy of love, worthy of joy, worthy of all things good, and all of that despite the evidence to the contrary. Why? Because someone else's righteousness, someone else's innocence, someone else's worthiness was attributed to me, imputed to me. Again, all of these words paint a picture of the scale of forgiveness, a scale, to be honest, I am just only starting to understand, only starting to believe in my own heart, If the scale of my sin truly is unbearably massive, a matter not just of action, but of thought, of motive, of my deepest desires, then forgiveness is even greater than that. But as lovely as these images are, we can't truly understand them unless we understand how these images all get woven together in the cross of Jesus Christ. After all, we can wish that these things were true. But they would not be true if Jesus had not accomplished this kind of forgiveness for us in his death. Jesus lifts our guilt and shame. How? By bearing it himself. Jesus covers us, our sins, by shedding his innocent blood on our behalf. And Jesus, my sin is no longer counted to me. Instead, as Colossians 2 puts it, the record of our debt, a record of debt that stood against us has been canceled with all of its legal demands. How? Because it has been nailed with Jesus to the cross. This is why we sing our sins, they are many, his mercy is more. Without Jesus, all of David's, David's promises are wishful thinking. They might be lovely, but they are dishonest, false hopes, unless the gospel really is true. You see, friends, when it comes down to it, we actually cannot forgive ourselves. I talk about the forgiveness we need is from God and then ends up being more satisfying. Well, when it comes down to it, part of the reason is because forgiving yourself is not a possibility. Because sin is not finally against us. It's not against me. It is against God. And in Christ, it has been utterly forgiven. I realize many of us wish we could believe this, wish it felt more true to our hearts than it does right now. But when we say, I can't forgive myself, we are, you, are either saying, one, someone else's approval matters to me more than God's does, convinced we won't really be happy unless they are happy with us, 
In other words, because we are worshiping an idol rather than God, or because we're still intent on trying to cover ourselves, convinced I really should be able to. Maybe if I just try harder, give a bit more, or punish myself a little bit longer, I really can live up to my own standards. I can make myself lovable. In other words, we are hoping in our own self-righteousness. And still another possibility of why we can't forgive ourselves is because we doubt a love like this really could be ours. We have spent so long trying to gain love, waiting for everyone to walk out on us. We've seen really ugly things in ourselves that it's too difficult to believe that this forgiveness doesn't come with a hidden agenda or an expiration date. Friends, there is no greater lengths God could go than he has gone to forgive you. If you're waiting for something else to prove his love and to accomplish love for you, you're not going to find it. The cross of Jesus Christ In Jesus, we find him go to infinite lengths, bearing the ultimate cost, doing all that was required so that you would know finally and forever forgiveness. There's no greater lengths that God could possibly go to, and the relief you want is not found in forgiving yourself, but receiving the forgiveness that is already yours through faith in Jesus. It is found in saying to God, God, I really am in a miserable state. I'm worse off than I've ever dared to admit in my life, unable to do anything of real substance about it. But I believe that Jesus' death worked for me, that his mercy has come to me. My debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood that my Jesus spilt. And because I have that forgiveness, I am more loved than I ever dared hope and always will be. You wouldn't be the first person who has to preach that news to themselves daily, sometimes moment by moment, because we, are, we find our culture, we find others, we find our very selves preaching the opposite on repeat. We need to preach back to it the truth that is found in Christ. But this leads finally to the crossroads of repentance. I want us to notice how our passage describes the turning point in David's experience. How did he come to experience the joy of forgiveness? What replaced his groans with shouts of joy? Verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. It's interesting. Those who have been through AA may be able to tell me this, those who've been through Alcoholics Anonymous. But what is the fifth step essential to recovery? Admitting to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Now, even though AA isn't a Christian organization, there is something very Christian about that definition. A confession, you see... As it's put here, and in fact, it's, this, it's expanded even more in the Bible, it quite simply owns up to the exact nature of our sin. It owns up to what God sees. It agrees with God, in fact, about what he already sees without excuse, without pretense, or promises to change, and it seeks his forgiveness. It places itself in dependence to God, saying, I can't give you any reason to forgive me other than what Jesus has done. 
but I need what you only can provide, and that is that very forgiveness. Confession admits, agrees with God about what he already sees, and places it in dependence upon God, knowing the consequences, knowing the shame of what I have done to my maker, and asks him to forgive. It is simply, it is a simple but immensely difficult task, I think we would say, that David comes to experience, and he comes to experience true, lasting relief, even joy as a result. But then in verse 6, six through 11, he reveals uh, that his experience isn't where the psalm is going to end. It's only a case study for us. It presents us with a kind of crossroads. In fact, David is rather urgent about this. In verse 6, he says, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. What does that mean, when you may be found? Well, I think David is getting at uh, the fact that too many of us are waiting for a better moment to turn to God. Maybe when my life is a little bit more put together. Maybe when... um, A bit more time has passed and I don't feel as bad. We want to wait until we've exhausted all of the other options. It's why we only turn to God when things are really bad, when the consequences are really severe. But according to David, there really is only one option, and that is immediate repentance. The choice, in some sense, is now or never. Here's why. It has to do with what David says back in verse 2 about the one in whose spirit is no deceit. Now, what in the world does that mean, in whose spirit is no deceit? Why does he put it that way? Well, you see, the only alternative to repentance is deceit. Our characteristic pattern is to deal with our sin by either pretending or performing, by pretending that things are not really as bad as they are, or performing our way, or at least hoping we will, back into God's good graces. But if what the Bible says about sin is true, then in either case, we are only deceiving ourselves, we are only deceiving others, and we are only trying to deceive God himself with a false picture of who I really am. While we are trapped in this kind of deceit, there will be no real repentance because there is no real honesty, no real openness, no real sorrow, no real willingness to change. We might run to God on occasion, but it's usually because we want to escape the ugly consequences or the ugly emotions, not because we really recognize it is God we have offended and we want his forgiveness, not because we want so desperately to obey him, to glorify him once more. A person, though, that can expect God to be their hiding place, as David puts it, the one who protects them and defends them, the person who can rest and experience rescue from their God, a God who bears them through their greatest adversities as it speaks of the waters overwhelming. It is not someone who only seeks him out in extreme times when they are really panicking, but the one who has built a relationship of trust and reliance with God. How? Through ongoing, immediate repentance. You know, many religious people, we have a form of repentance, but it's mostly to get God off our back. 
very infrequent. In fact, we, ex- we get mad with God when he doesn't show up for us because doesn't he look at what I've deserved, what I've done for him, how much I've contributed to his cause? It turns out the religious actually know very little of this kind of repentance when it comes down to it. In fact, what it means to be a godly person, a righteous person, a person who is upright in heart, according to this passage, is uh, a person who repents. Because godly people aren't perfect people. They are forgiven people. They show that they are upright. They show that they trust the Lord, yes, by their obedience, but, but friends, by also by their repentance. It is important to say that our repentance is not due to the fact uh, that God's forgiveness in some way expires, okay? I need to say that. I, I grew up uh, um, in many ways in fear that if I left an unconfessed sin before I uh, went to sleep at night and maybe I died while I slept, then I would uh, end up in God's judgment in hell. That is not a biblical teaching, okay? The Bible very clearly teaches the person who has put their faith in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins has that forgiveness, and it has no escape clause and no expiration date. However, ongoing sin causes our experience of the relationship we have with God to suffer drastically. Thankfully, John tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In fact, John would say, if you claim to be without sin, you're a liar. You're deceiving yourself. But a life that experiences God as their hiding place does so through ongoing, an ongoing relationship of genuine, transparent repentance because they are continually and ongoing, experience, ongoingly experiencing the joy of forgiveness. Let me say that again. The person who experiences God as their hiding place does so because they are continually experiencing the joy of his forgiveness. Every time they go to him in prayer asking God, you forgive, will you forgive? He does so because of what his son has done. And that joy becomes repeated. It becomes powerful. That becomes, I wake up uh, more aware of that grace today than I was yesterday if I'm in that kind of relationship. I come to see my sin all the more clearly and I come to see the cross all the more clearly as the result. I mean, you really paid that for me? You went to those lengths for me? You see, the, the more we understand our sin, the greater the cross becomes in our imagination. This is why the choice in many ways is now or never. And if repentance is a rarity in our lives, it may maybe should make us wonder how real our repentance was to begin with. This is why we should not delay. Because if we choose to delay, believing I just need a bit more time, believing that things are not, just that, are not that bad yet, we may never break from that deceit again. But then this choice is also life or death. Often the reason we avoid confession is because we are trying to protect ourselves from God. We're trying to maintain our freedom from God. But notice the irony, friends. According to this passage, in trying to protect yourself, you are denying yourself true protection. You have have to keep hiding. Instead, you could be hidden in God, the one who truly defends your reputation and guards your future. In trying to protect yourself, you are giving up true protection. Add to that, in trying to maintain your freedom you are actually denying yourself true freedom. 
What is the alternative of a life of eager and authentic repentance? Well, David compares that to an animal that must be held in check, check, like a horse with its bridle. A life, this is the image, of forced compliance. A life lived only by instinct, by experience, or by coercion, instead of a life free for loving obedience. For many religious people, all they know is forced compliance, a life of pure duty. But that is not the kind of life that David describes. He seems to quote God in verse 8, God's promise to instruct and teach, to counsel with his eye upon David's life. David finds this to be freeing. He knows there's life found in obedience, and so there's nothing more freeing than hearing more of what obedience looks like, of God speaking clearly, being his counselor. He knows that God himself is committed to keeping him on that path, committed to him living a free life full of joy. This kind of person who knows obedience is for their joy is happy to repent and does so both frequently and honestly because they aren't trying to save face or deceive others about who they truly are. They know who they are, and they know that in Christ they have been forgiven. And the reason they repent so quickly is because they want nothing to stand in the way of that relationship. Friends, do you want to eradicate a sense of perfectionism and judgmentalism around you, particularly in the church? You think about how often that critique is put on churches, that we set the standards too high, or that people are judgmental. You want to see that die? You want to see that die? I I definitely do. You want to see that die? Live a life of authentic repentance. Be public with others in your confession. Let your friends hear it. Let your spouse hear it. Let your kids hear you repent. Shout your joy if you must. Let others in on all that God has done for you. Yes, this is awkward, especially in a culture that tells us to be private, which lays an unbearable burden of perfectionism upon us. But when you repent, when you are a public about the joy that God has given you through forgiveness, who knows who you might free up to repent as well? This deflates perfectionism, destroys judgmentalism. A public life of authentic joy that confesses freely. And since the choice is now or never, the choice is life or death. Friend, will you come to God while he may be found? I want to go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we know that we, um, our lives should be ones of repentance, as Martin Luther put it. And yet we recognize that we, so much stands in the way of confession, true confession in our life. We hold back even in our most honest prayers with you and with others. We're trying to protect ourselves and we want to give it up. We want to give up the fight. It's exhausting us. We want to hand over the weight we cannot bear of our shame. Lord, we need you to apply the good work of your son Jesus Christ to our own hearts, even though that we know it's a concrete reality for those who have put their faith in you for the forgiveness of their sins. They don't need to worry about that forgiveness going away, but it's hard for us to live uh, feeling the reality of that, to walk in step with that reality, to treat others as if that is true, and we need you to wake us up to it. That we wouldn't so much forgive ourselves, but receive the forgiveness that is ours in Christ. And for those who are not yet Christians, who have never sought you for forgiveness, would would we take the crossroads seriously? 
Would we come to you in faith knowing that true protection is found in you, true relief is found in you, joy is found in you, freedom is found in you. We cannot possibly find it on our own. Would you remind us of all the ways that we've tried and come up wanting? And would we for the very first time open our hearts to you to agree with what, what, what you already see and putting our faith in the only one our faith can, can, uh, should be in, the only one who can bear the weight of all that sin, Jesus Christ. And would you create in our church a church where there is a eager spirit of repentance. We pray all of these things for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.